This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, uh, Phil Goldberg, author of American Veda. Our podcast, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Our guest today, Ms. Claire Hoffman. Uh, she is a journalist. Uh, she was formerly a staff reporter for the Los Angeles Times and a freelance reporter for the New York Times. Uh, she serves on the board of her family foundation, the Girl Turs Foundation, as well as the Columbia School of Journalism. Uh, she has a master's degree in journalism and also from Columbia University and also a master's degree in religion from the University of Chicago. Her book, Greetings from Utopia Park, Surviving a Transcendent Childhood. Uh, great book. I read it. Uh, had a very difficult time putting it down. I read it in about three, th- three sittings, uh, which is quick for me. And uh, it's especially interesting to me because I lived for two years in Utopia Park, so uh, I could really uh, relate to much of what was written about. Uh, So, uh, Claire, thank you so very much for taking the time to come on our show today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to both of you. And we're excited to talk to you. And uh, before we begin, in the interest of full disclosure, we should mention that your book is um, in large part about your years in Fairfield, Iowa, in the uh, uh, center of the transcendental meditation world. And both Dennis and I uh, spent years there ourselves um, before you, maybe yeah. even before you were born, come to think of it. Bars of horror. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so just in the interest of... Uh, Full disclosure for our listeners, Claire. Let's begin. You you had uh, a, a successful journalism career and were in academia, um, and then decided to write this uh, memoir. Tell us, uh, for our listeners, uh, what gave rise to the desire to write this book. What was the impetus? Well, I think it had been percolating. For a long time, so while it seems like something that just happened, it's something that has been very slowly happening for a long time in some ways. I think uh, initially I had seen it as an investigative project. You know, maybe a decade ago, I was very interested in using my skills as a reporter and an investigative reporter uh, on the movement and Marishi and sort of getting clarity where there isn't a lot of it with uh, the TM organization. Um, and then I put it down. I, I, I sort of, life happened. And after I became a mother, I found myself sort of strangely drawn back to TM, wanting to meditate more, wanting to uh, sort of reconnect in some way with that part of my life and, and have that be something that I passed on to my children, which was surprising because I think, you know, a decade ago I was probably pretty cynical about the movement. So, you know, I think my position evolved and I felt like I felt like that evolution was interesting. I mean, I guess as a writer you always have to think <laughs> your ideas are interesting, but it, you know, it was there was a lot for me to kind of work through and think about in writing this book in terms of belief and the religious experience and the way that groups work and how, you know, individuals can participate in these sort of cosmic groups or, uh, you know, these groups around ideas of the divine and, you know, the good things and the bad things 
within that and, you know, also how we create meaning in our own lives. So, I mean, I, I, for me, the last couple of years that I've spent working on it have been super rewarding because it's allowed me to think through a lot of big questions, not necessarily answer them, but think through them. Right. Uh, Clara, uh, I wanted to mention to you that I've, I've talked to a number of people that have read your book. One thing they've all had in common is everybody has read it like they couldn't put it down. So, uh, and I've heard uh, mostly people just love the book, uh, but the criticisms from the book come from one of two groups. Either people that are very deeply involved uh, with TM and the TM organization and, and the intentional community that, that they created, uh, and people that are very against that uh, uh, TM and the community. And like the, the two opposite ends, the people that are very much still propagating TM, the people that are very against it, uh, one group saying it was, wasn't, uh, uh, wasn't uh, um, complementing enough of the movement, the other group said, it was too complimentary. And, and I thought, actually, my, my response was, hey, that, that's a great, uh, that, that's to uh, Claire's uh, credit, because obviously she, to me, when I hear that, it, it seems that you, you looked at it very objectively, not, not uh, trying to propagate anything, not trying to uh, condemn anything, but really sort of just looking at it in, in as fair and balanced a way as you could. It, was that your approach and angle on it, or did you have a specific agenda? Yeah, I mean, I think to Phil's question about why I write the book, I, part of that was that I did feel like those were the two conversations about the movement and, you know, really about religion and organized religion in general. You know, it's either people who are members, who have a vested interest, who've, like, dedicated themselves entirely to a religious movement, or it's people who are saying it's a complete scam you know, these are con artists, we are idiots, people are stealing money, you know, it's a sham. And I, I felt like it's just my experience was so much more complicated than that, and I wanted to write about that, and I feel like the truth is, for most people, it's more complicated than that. And I totally get, I get both positions, but I, I will say, like, I completely get the anti uh, anti. TM movement position, for example, because I think there's a lot of kids that I grew up with specifically that that fall into that category, and not a lot, but a, a fair number. And I have I have heard from them about that that I, they don't feel like I, you know, dropped the hammer hard enough or indicted the TM movement for you know the wrongs of the past. And I get that. I do. I, 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 you know, that's like a interesting conversation to have, but I don't, I just don't see it that way. Like I, I do see it as a more complicated experience. And I, yeah, so I, I feel like so much about belief and, and spirituality and religious movements is about experience. So that seemed like the best way to write about it was to sort of do it through the personal as opposed to this sort of objective uh, investigation, because I, I actually don't think it would work. Well, I want to welcome you to the club, Claire. <laughs> Thank um, you. Because uh, after uh, American Veda came out, I got it from both sides. Yeah. Um, and not just uh, the TM world uh, and the followers of... Um, we should let people know who don't that we're talking about transcendental meditation yeah. and the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi's um, teachings that became the centerpiece of uh, Fairfield, Iowa. Um, 
and I, but I covered in my book all the groups that came and all the guru-centric groups, and um, I got it the same thing. It was like you were too kind on those uh, reprobates, or right. you were you were uh, you didn't uh, say enough good things about my guru and his wonderful, right. wonderful contributions. So I take that as evidence of fairness and balance, uh, and I hope you do as well. Did you look at um, any of the other organizations in the process of your work or any of the other teachings that came through to, to find parallels between your experience and others? Well, I do want to say that I, I use your book while writing mine, and I love it. Okay. I love your book, and it's, it's, um, it's such a great resource. I hope that everybody who is interested in meditation and sort of Eastern philosophy picks it up because it's it's so important and it's it's just a, it's sort of a fundamental I think um, in terms of other organizations and parallels I mean I'm I'm always fascinated by new religious movements and as a reporter I've reported on Scientology and I've reported on um, the FLDS the fundamentalist Mormons. Uh, you know, and I always love reading about Children of God and the Rajneeshis, but those are all, you know, sort of more extreme in some ways than the TM movement. The TM movement was, like, sort of wonderfully disorganized and messy and, and loose in a lot of ways, and you could belong or you could not belong. Uh, so I don't I don't see parallels in, in that. I mean, I do think one of the things that I wish... I had more grounding in is sort of understanding the way that the Tia movement and its philosophy and Marishi's philosophy sort of fits into the larger uh, history of transcendentalism in America because it does, you know, and I think if I had been writing for a narrower audience, I would have maybe had more of that in the book because I think that's such an interesting piece. Mm -hmm. No, uh, Claire... Uh, for those who haven't read the book, and again, I highly recommend if you do, uh, it, it's more than a book just about uh, the, the, the community of Fairfield and where you grew up and the particular spiritual organization that you associated with, but it, it's a book about faith and about belief and meaning and how one deals with a crisis in, when one has a crisis in faith or whatever. So you came to Fairfield when you were young, uh, like four or five years old, with your mother, and uh, it, it, in the book, it sounds like initially the experience was very good, but then as you grow up, and this happens uh, to people of all faiths, you reach a point where there's some questioning, some doubt. Tell us about that period and how you transition out of that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the sort of cynicism that I'm talking about. I think when I was, I mean, actually pretty young, around 12 or 13, I just started seeing the world really differently, you know, up until that moment, for me, I had been, you know, like a real true believer, I really, I really felt like I was within the bubble of reality that Marishi and his movement had created, and I really saw the world through, you know, Marishi colored glasses, and that felt fantastic, um, and very real, and I think, you know, when I was 12 or 13, I just started, there were a lot of cracks in that for me. I saw that my mom was struggling financially to be able to be a part of this community. I saw the pressure that it put, that it was put on her. 
I felt at school this sense of being, you know, not ideal. There was the ideal that was held up of Marishi and who he was and the qualities and virtues that he wanted us to have. And, you know, I felt like I always fell short. I mean, as a funny side note, I think one of the <laughs> weird, soft uh, spots that I have just in, in the two weeks since the book has come out is the criticism from people within the TM movement that it was just like my bad attitude that made <laughs> TM not work for me. And that it really harkens back to that feeling that I had when I was 12 and 13 where it was like any kind of criticism or negativity or, you know, thinking counter to what was being said was seen mm-hmm. as as bad, like a bad personality almost. And it really like, it, it hits me deeply because I think that was a, a piece of what I grew up with at school. And I, I have gotten notes from kids, you know, other kids from the Marishi school who felt that, that sense of like just not measuring up and, and, and then seeing their parents struggle. And, you know, slowly that can lead to a real focus on hypocrisy and a kind of nihilism, and that's why I, I sort of do understand and feel um, empathetic to people who are angry at the TM movement, because I know that's a really bad feeling, and I understand that anger and outrage. I guess I'm just saying, for me, that I moved past that doubt and past the hypocrisy. Like, I, I felt like hypocrisy was not the end game. It was a... It was a position and a point of view and it's a valid one but there there's space beyond that you know and it's and it's you know it's you can kind of delight in some of the contradictions of it you know like that it's for me you know there's so much that I find totally absurd and bizarre about the TM movement and uh you know I could I could (laughs) I could talk about that for a while although I won't but (laughs) And, I mean, it's like, don't trick me into doing it because it would be so easy. But at the same time, I mean, I feel like meditation is such a big, important part of my life. And it completely has changed, you know, me and it changed my mother's life. And, and I hope it's something that I can, you know, give to my daughter. So, I, you know, that contradiction is um, something I kind of enjoy and want to, I feel like there's more truth there than in the hypocrisy. I think I've forgotten your question, though. No, <laughs> no, no there was it, it, it was it was right right there, and and, and it's, okay. all, it's all about questions of, of of belief and faith, and questioning those beliefs and faith, and how healthy that is, and how common that is. But Phil, take it from there. You you um, Claire have uh, obviously did not throw the baby out with the bathwater, right. and in in my experience, people who get disillusioned by uh, spiritual organizations often have that kind of extreme reaction that uh, this is all nonsense and I'm let down and it's not what it was cracked up to be, so I'm dumping the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You you were able to discern the difference between the human uh, foibles of organizational life and communities and the uh, methodologies or the practices that were taught. Have you found in looking at your contemporaries who shared your experience uh, that there's both kinds of people? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, that's there's a way in which I can start to feel sort of angry and righteous when I think about some of the kids I grew up with, some who I'm very close to, who, you know, are kind of really hurt by what happened. Um, and, and, and when you believe so truly in something and, and feel so connected to it and then experience that betrayal, you know, see that, see that it's not entirely true, see that it's not as it was represented to be, that can really, like, pervade your whole life. So I do see kids that I grew up with that are very nihilistic, who sort of move towards drugs and alcohol, mm-hmm. uh, and, and anger, you know, a lot of anger. Um, and that's, I wouldn't say that's the majority. I would actually say the majority is somewhere closer to where I am. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But but I do I I I feel a sense of protectiveness of of people who 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 emerged hurt by that. Yeah. You know, and I see. I mean, part of writing the book, um, and I hope this doesn't like descend into narcissism. So help me. <laughs> but <laughs> but I mean, it is a memoir. But uh, I feel like one of the things for me writing the book is some of those qualities that I was talking about that I I didn't like about myself as a kid in writing it and sort of having to sort of see myself as a character moving through the experience. I was able to kind of see how those helped me survive and, 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 and be able to move on and not be hurt mm-hmm. by the experience. So I've tried to kind of embrace those things. I mean, as an example, and I'm going to toss this one out because I think it might be interesting to you guys. I think, you know, I actually had like a whole chapter that kind of got deleted from the book about this, but um, ambition in the TM movement, uh, I've found to be a very interesting and strange thing. And Mm -hmm. especially as kids, you know, I mean, we were certainly told that we were going to be leaders, you know, in the dawn of the age of enlightenment. And we talked about leadership all the time. Um, but I felt like, you know, you know, by the time I was in high school and college, you know, if people were calling me ambitious that I grew up with, it was sort of an insult, you know, mm-hmm. like that, uh, you know, and even, you know, people in Fairfield would say, you know, oh, God, she's so ambitious, you know, it was sort of like, it was just this, it, there was a certain, you know, idea that that wasn't the way that you're supposed to be. Uh, and yet, you know, and, and I felt like that kind of came in some ways from the complicated relationship of Marishi to his own ambition, because he obviously was extremely ambitious, but I don't think you could ever say that in the movement that he was an extraordinarily ambitious person. Uh, I mean, like remarkably, exceptionally ambitious and yeah, I think that, that that comes from the idea of, like, being self-centered versus, you know, group having some sort of larger transcendent mm-hmm. experience of reality. Claire, when you wrote the book, uh, uh, did you reach out to the TM movement uh, to, to in your research, and uh, what type of cooperation did or did you not get? It's a great question. I, you know, um, about... Four years ago, I'm sure I'm wrong on my math there, maybe 
three years ago, I wrote an article for the New York Times Magazine. And so I definitely was more engaged during that process. Um, and that was before I had I knew that I was writing a book and had sold the book. I was still sort of an idea. And I guess so. I guess it was probably four years ago. And, you know, I, I, I did talk with John Hagelin a bit. Um, I, I've tried a few times to interview Bevan, and we, that never happened. Well, we should point out that those are the two names you mentioned are yeah. leaders of the TM movement in America. Yeah, I I have, however, interacted a lot with Bobby Ross, which probably is why there may be like a more gentle <laughs> feeling. You know, I I for me, I felt like Bobby Ross, who is the head of the David Lynch Foundation, is sort of bringing TM into the next generation. He's he's shifting the focus back to just the technique and in almost this much more. Um, Secular way, there's no, there's not a lot of Marishi uh, for people who learn TM now, and I think that that is partially because of Bobby. Although I don't think he'd like me to say that. Uh, <laughs> um, so, and I, 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 I get that. I think that's smart. I, I think that's probably the the way that that, that the TM movement will survive. Um, but you know that's and I I interviewed Richard Bell who is an administrator I think he's he's the principal of the Marshy School and it was really I mean they were interesting I, I people shared their um, experiences really candidly and I get um, I should say like I I I understand that viewpoint I mean I think these are people you know I mean take. Mr. Bell, I, they are people who have dedicated their lives to an idea, and they believe very strongly in in the principles that they're um, enacting. And so, you know, I respect that. I don't think there's anything devious about that. Mm-hmm. Claire, um, uh, we should point out to our listeners that if they want to hear Bob Roth's side of that story, <laughs> we have interviewed him, and he is in our archive. Okay. Um, well, I don't think he necessarily has a different story or no, 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 a rebuttal, saying... but it's more, yeah, I see what you're saying, yeah. <laughs> um, tell, what, is it, can you tell me in a nutshell, or is it... Well, no, 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 I'm, I was joking about yeah. his side. We just... You know, we he do doesn't mention your with book it. or anything like that. Uh, it's just that he, you know... Um, uh, he would bring it as a, a movement, a TM movement representative. But like you said, uh, he's bringing it to the next generation, and his emphasis yeah. is different than probably the emphasis that you saw back in the day, or Filler and I saw back in the day. Right. Yeah. No, it's a good interview for people who. Are I'm going to listen to. It. I did not. I'm going to. I have to find it. I was listening to your Marianne uh, interview today, and she was fantastic. Oh, That's such a yeah, good Marianne Williamson. Um, um, Claire. Uh, you have alluded to, and I found in my research, that uh, your generation of people um, who, whose parents were the, the baby boomer generation of people who got involved with uh, all the different gurus who came and, and essentially were the, the, the ground troops of bringing these ideas of yoga and Indian philosophy into the world, um, that... Um, some people grow up in communities like 
the one you did, and they find it uh, and hold it as adults to be a great blessing uh, that they had this unusual and um, uh, wonderful upbringing. Others, as you suggested earlier, are very angry and bitter and feel that you know their lives were ruined by living in what they think of as a as a cult. Um, there's a, a variable in this that you you know you were both in the same com- community, both types of people, but you had different parents, mm. and and you had um, a, a particularly interesting set of parents, and there was a certain <laughs> amount of dysfunction there. Um, mm. Have you found any patterns in those who made a, a good adaptation to adult life and those who had difficulty? Uh, you know, I haven't seen it so much in the parenting. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say it was the parenting. Mm. I mean, there are cases where it's the parenting. Mm. I more see like a larger sort of psychological trait of, of being, you know, a survivor, Mm. um, which has like a good and bad side, you know, I mean, that's, that's sort of what I was talking about, about this these qualities of myself that I've not always thought were that great. Uh, but you do see how it can help you move through um, these experiences. And I think for me, you know, I I was probably less, even though I am sensitive, I, I was probably less sensitive and less hurt or slowed down by some of this stuff. You know, I kind of just kept moving or I had the instinct to sort of leave. You know, I mean, as, as you kind of mentioned, my dad left when I was five and that's when my mom moved my brother and I to Fairfield and he came back into, he got sober and came back into our lives when I was 12 and he did sort of offer this counter voice to the experience that I was having in Fairfield and I think that was a big factor for me to have somebody that I knew and I loved Uh, you know, sort of saying, you know, questioning, like, why is your mom working all the time to send you to the school? And, you know, I don't think, you know, disagreeing with what the teachers were saying, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and sort of encouraging qualities in me that right. weren't being encouraged. Right. Very clear. I, w- I wanted to just say that, uh, and again, you know, uh, having read the book, and, and, and I actually read it very thoroughly, uh, your parents were both very loving parents that both really brought a lot to you. Your father was gone for your life at a certain time, but your mother was typical mother doing everything to bring highest quality of life to her kids. Your father uh, uh, and your mother both well-educated. Your father trying to give you perspective and all. So I think uh, anybody who might say uh, that your questioning of your experience or your criticism of, of the community had anything to do with any dysfunctionality in the family doesn't know your story. Because it was clear that that quite frankly, uh, it was a, you know there was a more, way a lot of functionality there and a lot of love and a lot of support, and that um, the way I see it and, and I'd like your comment on it is that you know you're you're a person that's drawn to philosophy that's drawn to theology that's drawn to the bigger questions the deeper thinking, and then uh, that's what led to your uh, questioning it in in the in in the first place, and then you went to graduate school to study religion, University of Chicago, a great program. You went to Columbia Journalism School and you started thinking and, and the book really comes, as I see it, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, in your quest to really deeply understand 
what your experience was, what was the good, the bad, the ugly, every aspect of it, and bring it out and share that with people as objectively and clearly as you can. And I think it's a, it's a process for you that you're still uh, uh, searching and seeking and trying to uh, give a correct perspective to it. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, uh, you know, besides kids who uh, went to the Marishi school, like people who had this sort of very similar experience to me, the other um, group of readers that I've really heard from and have really connected to the book are people who grew up um, in some kind of religion, particularly Mormonism, mm-hmm. just to throw it out there, where there are all these amazing uh, qualities to, to growing up Mormon. You have an incredible sense of community, incredible sense of purpose, a real closeness, very much like clean living, which <laughs> the TM movement also sure. has. Uh, I mean, and is stereotypes, but then, you know, I mean, there's these like incredible uh, numbers on, you know, with the advent of the internet of, you know, this attrition of, of people leaving Mormonism because suddenly, you know, it's, it's a new religion and, and relatively, and there's a lot of stuff online that, you know, raises questions for young people who grew up in Mormonism um, and, and sort of, so what I've connected with are a lot of sort of well-educated uh, Mormons who have left their communities and really miss and long for the, the functionality and the good parts. Um, and I think, you know, that's the sort of trick of this. I mean, with my family, we were in tough circumstances and my mom made a choice to go to this utopian environment. You know, I mean, we were sort of totally broke in New York City and my dad disappeared. So that was certainly the dysfunctionality. But I actually, I mean, I think as Dennis said, like, I think my mom was (laughs) incredibly high functioning. Like, retrospectively, especially now that I'm a parent, I, I don't actually, I can't even understand how she did it. But she was working all the time, you know, to be able to support us, but also to be able to support, you know, her pursuit of higher states of consciousness and enlightenment. And I think that's, you know, it's so rare to see somebody um, pursue pursue that even when they don't have a lot of options, you know. And so I think, you know, the, the picture that you get from my family is maybe a little bit more acute than if it had, you talked to somebody, uh, you know, a friend of mine that grew up in the movement who had a lot more resources, maybe had a two-parent family, and, you know, that that would be a different story. I think for us, you know, I really deeply felt and saw the cost of Marishi's programs because, you know, at a certain point, everything became, in my experience, commodified. And that, you know, that was kind of brutal. Mm-hmm. Actually, I thought your mother came across in your book as an indomitable spirit very strong and determined to do right by her kids, and um, also determined to um, gain the highest states of consciousness. And, and that's not easy when you're struggling financially and, and all that. But um, the other aspect of your book that I, I want to praise is um, you have a skilled journalist's eye for the right detail and the right use of anecdote. And some of them, 
um, were very telling and rather amusing, frankly. And, <laughs> and, uh, and one that stood out was the uh, proclamation in 1989 about the Berlin Wall. Right. And that seemed to be a turning point for you in your young life. Maybe you could tell us about that. Yeah, I uh, that was that was definitely the sort of moment for me where everything changed. You know, not to sound dramatic, but it, it really was. I mean, we had a school assembly called, and everyone rushed over to the auditorium, and Bevan uh, was speaking, and it was you know sort of an emergency uh, assembly, if you will, and he told us you know, with tears in his eyes that the, that the Berlin Wall had been torn down and it was because of our meditations. And it was just this, like, click, this pop for me of, like, that, that, is, that is false. You know, that is not true. And I hadn't had that before. Um, it just, it was like almost getting, you know, popped out of a bubble. It just, it just it suddenly didn't make sense to me and I felt you know, looking around me and seeing people celebrating that they were wrong, that they were deluded. How old were you? I was 12. Wow. And, it, I mean, it took time, but that was the beginning for mm-hmm. me of, and, you know, I mean, that's a, as far as the TM movement goes, and it's a, a thing that you see in lots of different uh, religious organizations, but the focus going from, you know, the individual experience um, to world change, I, I think it's a tough one, <laughs> you know, <laughs> belief-wise. You know, you can, you can, people can believe and trust in their own experiences, but the idea that those experiences are having an effect on the world, it's a, it's a tougher proposition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Claire, you, you've mentioned to me um, in conversation that some of your closest friends are still folks, young people that you grew up with, well, young at the time, uh, in Fairfield that had a common experience. Do you think one of the reasons you've stayed so close, to, and, I, and I know a lot of people your age, say late 30s or whatever, that, that uh, you know, may have no association with uh, the TM community anymore, but they still are tight with a lot of their friends from, that, they, that they went to school with back then. Do you think it was because your upbringing was so unusual and you had some... You, you know, you don't have anybody else to share that experience with uh, other than the uh, folks you grew up with. Yeah, I think you see a mix. I mean, I would say generally, I mean, what my experience has been has been that of staying very connected and feeling like a true sense of, uh, you know, shared experience and intimacy with those people. I mean, I think, you know, there was probably a point in my early 20s where I didn't think I could marry somebody that didn't grow up the way that I did. Like, it felt like, I felt like such a distinct mm-hmm. outsider. Uh, you know, I mean, that obviously changed. I didn't marry somebody who grew up there. Quite the opposite. But, you know, on the other hand, I have gotten these letters in the last couple of weeks, which have made me aware that there are a lot of people who moved away when they were 18 and never looked back, and they right. never talk about it. They, they have completely sealed off that part of their life, and, you know, it's almost like a secret for them. And there are a fair number of people who, who do do that, you know, right. and I've, I even have that with some friends. I guess it's not exactly the same thing as what you're saying, but it is interesting mm-hmm. that people, some people really have shut that out, and I, I do have friends who've done that who 
who never talk about the way they grew up. Right. I, I think it's not unlike somebody that grows up like in a in a, uh, in an Orthodox like a Hasidic community, and and they choose at some point to leave. Some people stay very connected to that uh, uh, that community that they grew up with. Others just that's it. I'm gone. I'm moving on. Sort of a thing. So. I think it's yeah, and I definitely would say and argue that the TM movement in the 80s and 90s was full orthodoxy. Um, mm -hmm. I, that that's I would say that I would say that that was basically a sort of form of fundamentalism that was happening. Well, I would I would um, from my experience just modify that to say where you were and right. in, in that aspect of it, but. You know, the millions of people out there just meditating twice a day would not have uh, had had that same experience. No, no, that's yeah. That's why I definitely like Fairfield '80s and '90s. Yeah. Um, um, moment in time. Um, what was in the course of actually researching, thinking so much, and writing the book, and looking back on your life? How did that, the experience itself of working on the book? Um, change your your view of your uh, experience and the world you grew up in at all? How how do you see things differently after written, having written it from before? I think I it, I feel really lucky that I got to write it because it did allow me to really move through these questions. But I don't think I have I don't think I'm at a final answer. And uh, I, I think I'm figuring it out. I mean, I feel very, I don't know how you, like, how do I live in Los Angeles and uh, have a um, sense of purpose and community like we had in Fairfield? I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't think you can. And, right. and I think, think it felt incredible, but I also think it's, you know, it's definitely, it's a razor's edge. I also think that community and that sense of purpose can lead to some pretty funky group dynamics. Mm -hmm. uh, Claire, I have one final question for you. What, what, yeah. what experiences and what lessons did you draw from, from your childhood, from your upbringing, both, both in Fairfield and both after you left Fairfield and went uh, to Los Angeles with your father? Uh, that, that, that you use to create the success, and obviously you've had a lot of success as a journalist uh, to, uh, to, to be as successful as you've been in your career. Oh, well, thank you for calling me successful. I appreciate that. I will hold that close today. Um, <laughs> doesn't always feel like that, but I appreciate it. I, you know, I think the thing that I got, you know, if I was going to say there was one thing from, from the way that I grew up, I think I have a sense of self that is, you know, not attached to my thoughts, that is not, um, that, you know, that I do have like a sacred sort of quiet, quietness that I identify as, as, as self and, and that it is transcendent and that I feel connected. And I see for a lot of, uh, people and friends and that I have now, that there, there is that real identification with their thoughts. Um, you know, that's that's real sort of separating mm -hmm. point. <laughs> right, it's a great point. Um, and I, you know, I think uh, 
I, I, I feel very appreciative of that, you know, as, as stressed out as I can get and I completely get stressed out and I can be anxious. I can, you know, this has been an anxious couple of weeks for me. Mm-hmm. I do think that I, I have, there's some, some interiority there that, that I feel like is, is kind of a gift. Yeah. Very good. Uh, one last question for you. Um, speaking of anecdotes from your book, did you ever get to write about Marilyn Monroe? <laughs> no. Oh, no. well, okay. there you go. You know what I did? You and Norman Mailer. Yeah, I know. I know. I love her. I still love her. I actually just... Um, this comes out in the book, by the way, for people listening in that haven't read the book. Yeah. Right. I was very, yeah, I was very attracted around like 13, 14, 15 to this like sort of 1950s sensibility of the world. Like it felt like the opposite of you know, Utopia Park and the Tia movement, like glamour and all that. But I, um, I just uh, ordered a set of stationery that uh, is identical to hers. So that is <laughs> as close as I'm going to come, which I can't even tell you the amount of joy I got in ordering that. It was sort of creepy. <laughs> well, Claire, thank you so much for your time. Again, the book, Greetings from Utopia Park, Surviving a Transcendent Childhood. I highly recommend the book. And one thing uh, everybody has shared in common uh, that, that's read this book that I've talked to, and it's been a few dozen people now, uh, everybody said they read it very quickly. They couldn't put it down. So that says a lot. And uh, Claire, I uh, want to wish you continued success and hope you back on the shows at some point in the future. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you, Phil. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming, and thanks for writing an honest and uh, enjoyable book. Thank you. I appreciate that. Take care.